Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to the book of Job. Our intention for the End of the Word podcast is to read through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in 15 to 20 minute segments. We're trying to give you the big picture. And yet sometimes after reading a long and demanding book like the book of Job, it can be very helpful to sit and to reflect back upon the whole. That's what I want to do in this episode. In order to organize our thoughts and observations, I want to ask and hopefully answer these five simple questions. First of all, what did we learn about God as we read through the book of Job? And secondly, what did we learn about suffering? Thirdly, I want to ask, what did we just learn about wisdom? In in fact, some scholars that we've been interacting with actually think Job is less about suffering and more about the source of true wisdom in a broken and complicated world. So let's get into that. Let's try and organize what we've learned about wisdom. And then fourthly, what does the book of Job teach us about friendship? The bulk of this book is a conversation between friends occasioned by one friend's terrible suffering. So there's an awful lot to learn here about how to be a friend and, of course, how not to be. And then lastly, what, if anything, did we just learn about Jesus? Jesus said that the whole Bible was about him. He said that in John 5, 39. He said it again in Luke 24, 27. So how does the book of Job speak about Jesus? We'll attempt to hit all of these questions in the order that I have just asked them. First of all, then, what did the book of Job teach us about God? Well, I think the first thing we want to say is that God apparently takes great delight in the love and faith of his people. That is what occasioned this entire episode. God was bragging on brother Job. Job chapter 1 verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God initiated this entire series of events. He was taking great pleasure in the faith and obedience of Job, and the devil was trying to rob God of glory and enjoyment. Now, I think this is very important for us to see because it is one of the issues that became subject to debate over the course of the dialogue between Job and his friends. Eliphaz actually asked this very question in chapter 22 when he said to Job, is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your way blameless? And of course, we know that the answer is yes. God does take enormous pleasure in the faith and obedience of Job. He is not the disinterested clockmaker of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, nor is he the distant master and sage of brother Elihu. He is far more personal and far more invested than any of the friends, than even brother Job himself has ever understood. God does take enormous pleasure in the faith and obedience of human beings. I think that's the first thing we'd want to say in this category. Secondly, I think we'd want to say that God obviously ordains certain tests to refine and display the faith and trust of his 
creatures. We see that in the opening narrative. This is all God's doing. Satan is a dog on a chain. He does what dogs do. But this is all about God from start to finish. He is allowing Satan to execute a test first and foremost because he wants to display Job's faith. But then secondarily, we observe him also refining Job's faith. And again, this is no different than what we observe elsewhere in the scriptures. In Genesis 22, verse 1, we read, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. In that test, apparently God wanted to know whether Abraham trusted him and loved him even more than he loved his only son, Isaac. And of course, Abraham passed that test with flying colors. At the climax of the test, God called a halt and said to Abraham, Abraham, stop, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, obviously, in some sense, God knew all of that before the test was conducted. God knows everything. But the Hebrew word used here, yada, means to know experientially. It is actually the word commonly used for sexual intercourse in the Bible, as in Abraham knew his wife Sarah, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. So God experientially knew Abraham and Job by means of these various tests that he ordained. Apparently, God does that. He loves us, he enjoys us, and he desires in some sense to know us experientially and to observe our responses to various tests and trials. Brothers and sisters, Our lives are lived before the gaze of Almighty God. In fact, Job seems to be very much aware of that throughout the narrative. He says in Job chapter 7, verse 17 and 18, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. Job is surprised and even overwhelmed by the intense interest that God apparently has in human beings. And I think that has to be one of the major takeaways from the book. God has an intense interest in human beings, and he utilizes a variety of tests and challenges in order to know us experientially. That is good to know. Thirdly, I think we would want to say that we learn in this book that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and entirely and perfectly just. I mentioned in the final episode on chapter 42 that when human beings experience or observe terrible suffering, they often undergo something of an intellectual crisis. They become aware that the world isn't the way they had imagined it to be. And if they believe in God, as Job and his friends all do, then they experience a crisis of coherence that is usually framed something like this. If God is all-knowing, And if God is all-powerful, and if God is just, then why is there so much suffering in this world? And of course, that's a reasonable question. That's a fair question. And Job got in trouble by the way in which he began to answer it. He never questioned God's knowledge. He never questioned God's power. But he did, just for a minute, question God's 
wisdom. You hear that particularly in chapter 9 when Job says, It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Verses 22 and 24. Of course, as Job often did over the course of the dialogue, he pulled back from this abyss almost immediately. But he did go there, and he had to answer to God for going there. In the Lord's speeches, they focus almost entirely upon the scope, complexity, and perfect justice of God's providential rule. And at the end, Job admits that he had no business questioning that aspect of God's character and nature. The conclusion he reaches is the one we're supposed to reach. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly wise in the governance of his creation. And that leads us to our second area of inquiry. We've talked about what the book of Job says about God, and now it is appropriate to ask what we've just learned about the causes and purposes behind human suffering. As I mentioned, when human beings encounter horrific suffering, they usually experience a crisis of coherence. If God is all-knowing, and if God is all-powerful, and if God is just, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Any attempt to answer these questions brings us into the realm of theodicy. Theologian Mark Scott defines theodicy this way. He says, Theodicy, in its classical sense, signifies the rational attempt to reconcile the existence of evil in the world with the doctrine of divine omnipotence, goodness, and justice. Closed quote. So, does the book of Job do that? Is Job a theodicy? Well, most scholars say no. M.A. Shields, for example, writes, The common notion that Job seeks to present a theodicy faces the rather significant difficulty that, in the end, the book offers no real explanation for innocent suffering beyond Job's individual circumstances and no explicit justification for Yahweh's actions. Close quote. So I think we need to be careful not to suggest that the book of Job is saying more than it is. It is not trying to tell us what the reason for suffering is. It tells us some of what the reason for suffering isn't. It isn't that God has imperfect knowledge. It isn't that God has limited power. It isn't that God is less than perfectly just. It isn't any of those things. And the book of Job goes to great lengths to show us that. And of course, it tells us some of what the reason for suffering might be. It might be for punishment. It might be for refinement. It might be to wake us up to our need for salvation. It might be to teach us humility and lowliness of spirit. It might be any of those things. But of course, it wasn't any of those things in the case of Job. And that reminds us that whatever we say about the purpose for suffering, we ought to be very careful how and to whom we say it. In Job's case, we know that his suffering was actually due to God's desire to showcase Job's faith and obedience, even in the absence of every physical gift and blessing. 
Job's suffering ultimately was for the glory of God. We know that, but of course, Job didn't know that, and his friends never even guessed at that, which of course is a further reminder that human beings are generally not very good at discerning the reasons for particular suffering. So we should never point at a hurricane and say, this came because of that. We should never point at an earthquake or a cancer cell and say, this came because of that. Human beings simply cannot know those sorts of things and therefore should probably never say those sorts of things. Theologian Mark Scott, cited above, goes on in the same article to say, while I would not abandon the project of theodicy, all theodicies eventually come to the realization that the mystery of evil exceeds our noetic capacity. We simply do not and cannot know why God allows some to suffer and not others, closed quote. It's enough to know that God knows and that he has a purpose for it, and that purpose will be accomplished whether we ever discover it or not. And that leads us very naturally into our third area of reflection related to what the book of Job says about wisdom and true understanding. I need to move a little faster here, and I think we can, because the book of Job seems to be making a fairly obvious point about the source of true wisdom. Job himself is very helpful in chapter 28. He says in verse 14, The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. You will not find it here on planet Earth. It isn't something you can dig out of the ground or drag out of the sea. Wisdom comes from God alone. At the end of the day, that is the major point being made here. This world is broken and confused and complex, and God is stirring the pot and raising up this and throwing down that and moving this piece over here and that piece over there. And from our tiny little self-centered vantage point, we cannot possibly expect to understand what is going on. We can't evaluate. We can't anticipate. We can't expostulate. Therefore, what we ought to do is wait upon the word of the Lord. That is what we can trust. If God has said it, then we can know it. If he hasn't said it, then we need to be extraordinarily cautious because, as the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We lie to ourselves, and we see what we want to see. We evaluate the evidence according to the conclusions we have already arrived at. We don't know anything, and therefore we ought to tremble before the word of the Lord. As the Apostle Paul said, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 1 Corinthians 1.25 so God is the source of the only real wisdom and understanding that is accessible and useful to human beings. That is the message of Job, and it is the consistent challenge of Holy Scripture. Fourthly, then, I think it would be helpful to reflect back upon what we learned from the book of Job about friendship. First thing 
I think we'd want to say is that silent, empathetic presence is a tremendous gift to hurting people. We are often too quick to criticize Job's friends because they did, in fact, start off very well. The text says in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's friends came from a great distance, probably at great expense, and they entered into his pain. They sat with him for seven days. And to be absolutely clear, it was Job who finally broke the silence. It was Job who wanted to start talking, not them. So I think Job's friends get a bit of a bum rap sometimes. They were good friends, and they did Job a great service by sitting with him in silence for seven days. So that's a good thing, and that's a great gift. When a friend loses a child or gets a cancer diagnosis, Just you being there, holding their hand, or better yet, doing their dishes and folding some laundry, and then just squeezing their shoulder before you head out the door, that is an incredible blessing. Empathetic, silent presence is a wonderful gift to hurting people. And before we're too critical of what they actually did end up saying, let's just remember that talking to terribly wounded people is an absolutely terrifying thing to do. Francis Anderson says here, There is no act of pastoral care more unnerving than trying to say the right thing to someone hysterical with grief. Closed quote. As a pastor, I can tell you that is absolutely true. So good for them for trying But at the same time, I think we can be and should be critical of what it is they actually did say. Job's friends had a wildly simplistic and woodenly proverbial view of the world, and it simply couldn't handle the complexity of this particular situation. And I think there is a lesson in there for us. Our ignorance and immaturity will inevitably cause injury and hurt to other people. Job's friends try to connect the dots between his suffering and his sin, which they assume he must have covered up. The book as a whole is telling us not to do that to our friends. Tremper Longman III says here, The book of Job helps remind us not to draw conclusions about a person's spiritual condition based on whether they are suffering. Closed quote. That is so important for us to see, and that was the major error that was made by Job's friends. So if you want to be a good friend... Don't say more than you should, and don't say more than can be supported by a clear appeal to Scripture. And if you want to be a good friend, obviously you're going to need to know your Bible. You're going to need to know what it says and what it doesn't say about God, about humanity, and about how God has redeemed humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And I think we could also say, if you want to be a good friend, you need to become a careful and committed listener. We too often treat all problems as if they come from some sort of collective bin. And then we meet those problems with a very sloppy application of our favorite truths and maxims. We need to do better. We need to listen better. John Calvin said very helpfully while commenting on Job 16, By this we are admonished, when we wish to comfort neighbors in their sorrows and trials, not to jump to conclusions, as there are many who are forever harping on the same string, and they do not consider the person to whom they speak. For we must treat one person differently from another person. Closed quote. That is world-class pastoral counsel. If you want to be a good friend, if you want to offer personal and pastoral care, do not jump to conclusions. Do not assume that what is happening to them is the same as what happened to your cousin Sally or your daughter Susie simply because there are some superficial similarities. Listen carefully. Think carefully. Open your mouth slowly and only after long and deliberate consideration of all that God's word has to say that might bear on your friend's particular situation. I think that is excellent advice for anyone who wants to be a good friend or a good neighbor or a good pastor for that matter. And then lastly, in terms of our reflections upon the book of Job, I want to reflect for a moment upon what we have learned on this journey about Jesus. Martin Luther said that Scripture is the cradle wherein Christ is laid, meaning that we worship the Christ of Scripture. We worship the Jesus anticipated in the Old Testament and explicated in the New Testament. So the question we're asking here is, how is Jesus anticipated in the book of Job? Of course, two things come to mind immediately. First of all, we remember that Job desperately wanted a meeting with God. Job wondered where God was in his suffering. He said in Job chapter 23, verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. In Job 31, 35, he said, Oh, that I had one to hear me. And you can, you can hear the pathos in those cries, and those cries anticipate the mercy and kindness of God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Job wondered whether God was with him in his sorrows. The incarnation, the manger, the baby born in Bethlehem, scream out, yes, yes, God is with us in our sorrows. He has entered in. He has drunk the cup to the very dregs. He is the suffering servant. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Job's longings perfectly anticipate the incarnation coming and compassion and of course cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think Job's hopes imperfectly and partially held and stated anticipate the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. I think of two passages in particular. First of all, in Job 16, during one of Job's worst moments at a time when he desperately wanted to die and put an end to his suffering, he was given a moment of brilliant prophetic insight. He said, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. 
that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Matthew Henry says here, those who pour out tears before God, though they cannot plead for themselves by reason of their distance and defects, have a friend to plead for them, even the son of man. And on this, we must bottom all our hopes of acceptance with God, closed quote. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Job had a fully developed hope in the future mediation of Jesus Christ. I'm saying that Job's hope points us in the direction of that mediation. Jesus Christ is the mediator that far surpasses anything Job could ever have hoped for, longed for, or imagined. But that, of course, is how Scripture works. The Old Testament shows us the problem and the pathos and the need and the hope. And Jesus Christ shows us the provision and the answer and the grace and the fulfillment of all those things and more. That's how the Bible works. That's why Jesus said, they testify of me. Job's longings and shadowy hopes point us forward toward the Christ of Scripture. Thanks be to God. Another classic passage expressing Job's longing and hope can be found in chapter 19, verse 25. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Francis Anderson says here, In this speech, Job's audacious faith reaches its climax in the famous words, I know that my Redeemer lives. He leaps to this height from a state of despair caused by the reproaches of his friends, his devastation by God, and his sense of utter forsakenness. His certainty of final vindication shines all the more brightly against this dark background. Close quote. Job has a hope which shines all the more brightly because of the background of his pain and suffering. Job has a hope in a final judgment and an eventual encounter with a Redeemer who will give back that which was lost and stolen and who will restore his lost dignity and joy. I will encounter the justice and kindness of God In my flesh, he says, at the last, he will stand upon the earth and make all things right. That is pretty far-reaching faith. That is the gospel, and that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to this special Reflections episode of Into the Word, where we've been looking back and reflecting upon some of what we've learned through this remarkable journey that we've enjoyed together. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I have enjoyed researching it and putting it all together. I'm looking forward to our next new series in 1 Timothy, releasing in April, but of course we will continue to release old content on the Facebook page and also over at TGC Canada as it reoccurs in the RMM Bible Reading Plan. If you're interested in finding those previous episodes and series, or you're looking for additional resources, you can locate all of those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca.
You can connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there at End of the Word, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I would love to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of End of the Word as we begin re-releasing the series on Galatians. We'll see you then. Before.